Hello everyone, welcome back to Holding Fast to Faith. I'm your host, Brett Hill, and today we're still in Revelation, continuing our Revelation study, Revelation chapter 9. So if you don't have your Bible, pause the podcast, run, get your Bible, come back and join us in Revelation chapter 9. Now, before we start, I want you to remember the language of the writing in the Bible in particular, but also in Revelation. There's many literary tools being used in this book. The writer, John, uh, uh, has used many uh, literary tools here that we need to be careful to both look for and uh, remember that they're there in the book. So this this word star, for instance, the, that starts out in this chapter, is uh, it's used in the start of the chapter, and the Greek word, it's an actual star. But so was the seven stars in Jesus' right hand in chapter 1, and those stars were products of a literary tool known as personification. He gave life to them and said, those seven stars in my hand just happen to be the pastors of the seven churches. So uh, the personification is the, uh, it's a noun, it's the attribution of a personal nature or human characteristics given to something non-human. And it, so we, we need to remember that a lot of these literary terms are in this Bible, and the, the we need to always keep in mind that we're reading a translated work. We have to keep in mind when it was translated and where it was translated and who did the translation. So uh, with all that said, I want you to know that William Tyndale was the first person to translate the original Greek text in the New Testament into the English language, but it was British English the British English that was from the 1500s. Now, what's so uh, remarkable about that or important to remember about that is this British English from that time period of the English Renaissance, from where William Shakespeare and many other famous poets were flooding the culture with new and exciting literary terms, tools, and writing styles. So in the middle of this, William Tyndale is moved upon to translate the Bible from Greek to a literary work of English poetry. And the English Renaissance time period spanned a time frame between somewhere around 1485 up to 1649. William Tyndale died in 1536, but the King James Bible, we need to remember it, King James himself reigned from 1603 to 1625, still in the peak of the Renaissance, and the King James Bible was written in 1611, right in the middle of this time period when everything being written was... Uh, in that English Renaissance where all this, these literary tools were exploding. So the British English-speaking poets during the greatest time period of famous historic poetry greatly influenced the literary writing tools used in our King James Bible. Now, they thrived on the opportunity because John had already set the precedence of using similar literary tools 1,500 years earlier. And John, by the direction of Jesus Christ, used these languages and writing tools. So with that, we have to remember that many times throughout the Bible, actual words are not actual meanings. We, we really need to catch that in the book of Revelation. Both John and William Tyndale, along with the other King James writers, greatly concealed the actual meanings of their writings from those who didn't know how to use those same literary tools as they did. Jesus even did those things himself. And listen, it was considered a privilege and prestige if you learned these language and literary tools and things like that of these great literary writers. 
So Jesus used these things when he spoke in parables to conceal his words from those who didn't want to seek the truth in them. So we need to understand these things and realize that some of the words that we read cannot be taken as actual literary words that you understand in English. We have to use the Greek concordance from time to time and, and lexicon and the culture of the Jewish culture where he was at and, and even in that area where he was, the Greek culture after the Jewish culture, uh, after when John was writing this in the late 90s of, uh, of the first century. So Keep in mind these things because John used personification in a lot of these things. So look at verse 1 where it says, And the fifth angel sounded. We remember in that word sounded in the last chapter, chapter 8. It literally means he sounded a trumpet. And it says, I, talking about John, John saw a star. That's the Aster, G792. It's an actual star is what that word means. He saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. So here we see that John is using personification, and he called the angel a star because of the way that the angel traveled from, the, from heaven to the earth. John saw a streak of light, just like you would see a falling star. So he saw a streak of light coming from heaven to the earth. But notice that this star didn't just have lifelike features given to it uh, and it not being lifelike. This star actually had the key to the bottomless pit. So it was an angel with that angelic garment on that shined those uh, light-emitting clothing, all that glorious light that comes out of the garments, the robes that all the Christians and the angelic beings would have on. And so it looked like a streak of light falling out of the sky until it jumped out with a set of keys and opened up the bottomless pit. So look, in verse 2, he opened the bottomless pit and there arose smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. So the smoke from hell spilled out into our atmosphere and blocked the light of the sun. Now, you can imagine what that looked like there because now you'll, you remember in the previous chapter, in chapter 8, that we read about some of the seals being broken, a third of the uh, the oxygen-giving trees and things like that were destroyed. So oxygen has already been cut really thin here already. And so now you have all this smoke filling up the atmosphere and it's taking away more oxygen too. It's going to be really, really tough to be breathing right now. And so the lights also darkened. There was eight hours taken away in chapter seven, I believe it was. Eight hours of daylight throughout the rest of the day was taken away and put into total darkness. And now we've got a third of the oxygen oxygen off the planet removed and now the whole planet's full of smoke. So you can imagine how bad things are getting here for the people that's left here on the earth. And look at verse three. And there came out of the smoke locust upon the earth and unto them was given power. Then this power was as the power like scorpions have. If, you, if you've ever studied the look of a scorpion and studied the power that the scorpion has with that deadly sting that he's get, got. Um, and that word given right there is the Greek word didomi. It's strong. G 1325 and it's something that's granted from authority it's that's the word granted it's something that's to be administered or someone was commissioned to do something and that word power right there is the Greek word exosia 
and uh, Strong's G1849, and it means a granted power from a higher authority. So it wasn't the ultimate power like dunamis, like God has himself and what Jesus has, but it's exosia. It's a limited power that's handed down from God himself. So there's power granted from the one who has that dunamis power to give somebody else the exosia power. So God has granted these locusts their release from hell and God has given them his authority for a very specific task. And that task is seen in verse number four. And it was commanded them that they, and we're talking about the locust, it was commanded to the locust that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree. Now that grass is the same word we used in the last chapter talking about food sources, things that we could eat, human beings could eat. So he's talking about don't just leave the food sources alone. Leave the oxygen creating trees and things like that. Don't bother with that. Your task, your create, the reason you was created is just to go after mankind. It says, but only those men, and that word men translates to mankind. It's not just males. It, it's, it's mankind. Anybody that is still here on this earth that don't have the seal of God in their foreheads. Now, many people like to use this particular scripture as their proof that the rapture hasn't taken place yet because there's people on the earth that's got the seal of God in their foreheads and, and we're still in the earth in the middle of all this stuff, but they quickly discard those passages of scripture previously where countless and thousands upon thousands of people are around the throne and, and under the altar and wearing those angelic robes and, and people that have come through the tribulation and the church that came up on chapter 4 all these people that's already there while Jesus is breaking the seals on this scroll right in front of them. So it's hard to believe it. It's hard to take that to say that the church is still here in the middle of that. It just doesn't make sense. It don't fit in. So let's look at the spirit realm for a minute about these locusts uh, hurting the people that's got the seal of God in their foreheads because we're up in heaven with with Jesus Christ himself. We're around the throne room and there's other people here on the earth that when the mountains are tossing and turning and that snow globe that I talk about, it's getting shook up a lot and people are making the choice to, to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and they ain't dead yet. They're still living on the earth waiting for death to find them and, but yet there's people that because of some of this calamity and the darkness and the and the bugs and the, the food stores, the starvation and all this stuff going on, they've chosen to put their faith in Jesus Christ. So in the spirit realm, let's look at the spirit realm for a minute. Does Satan go to and from the throne room accusing the saints? Of course he does. It says it in the Bible in many places. So Satan and all of his companions, however you see them, demons, beasts, ghosts, spirits, etc., they are in the spirit realm and they war with God's angels daily, both here and in heaven. Satan moves back and forth from heaven. And, and so several men in the Bible saw these battles of the spirit realm as well. So Satan's locusts have been given a mandated authority over mankind. We saw this in verse 3. This angel of the Lord that let them out and give them this mandate is simply setting limitations on these locusts and saying, look, that there, there may be people in heaven with a seal of God on their foreheads. There may be people on the earth with a seal of God. And for wherever these people are, the point is that this angel is telling these locusts 
Anybody that's got the seal of God in their forehead, you have to leave them alone. They're off limits for you. Any human being that hasn't received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're free game to you, but hands off my people, says the Lord. So that's what he's saying. He's telling them any of the men that's still on this earth that has not given their heart to the Lord, that he's not sealed them and put his mark on them to, to show those locusts that, hey, hands off of them, everybody else is free game. But still, look at God's grace and even opening up hell and allowing these locusts free reign in verse 5. So look at verse 5. And to them, the locusts, it was given or commanded that they should not kill them. Talking about mankind. So even though these locusts are here, the angel of the Lord came down with a message that you can torment these folks. You can go after these folks with everything you got, but you are not allowed to kill them. Your exosia power is ruled over by the uh, the power of God, the one that has all-encompassing power, and you cannot Go beyond the guidelines that God has given you. So this is really good news for anybody not saved yet. It's a sign of grace. It's saying that you're fixing to be in absolute misery for five months, but God is guaranteeing you that you will not will not die. So as bad as this sound, it's still God's grace given time for people to repent. So let's let's look look at that in verse number six. But that they should be tormented five months, and their torment was as torment as the torment of a scorpion. I've never been stung by one, but I've studied them pretty much, and they're pretty bad. And many people have died from the strike of a scorpion. But look in verse six, and in those days, talking about those five months of time that these scorpions are going to be stinging and man can't die. It's saying that men shall seek death and shall not find death and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. So scorpion stings are well known to be extremely painful, folks. However, why that happens has been a mystery because people don't understand it down to a molecular base. But kind of like eating hot peppers and stuff like that, the scorpion toxin is an amino acid uh, peptide and it, it activates some uh, some receptors in your body and the tissues and induces a fiery burning pain that's very similar to your mouth being set on fire from eating some hot chili peppers or, or ghost peppers or something and that oil, the oleocapsum resin from that pepper soaks into the nerve endings in your mouth and cannot be neutralized really quick. However, this scorpion venom induces something called TRPV1 activation. It's a sensory channel in the human neurons, and it's got a lot of acid in it. It's acidic, and it activates the sodium and calcium ions and depolarizes nerves, if it kind of inverted pain. So it's called nociceptive pain. I think I've got that, right, that word right. Uh, but it arises from tissue damage or physical or chemical agents. And it's a, it's like a chemical burn, a lingering burn pain, like, like having your hand on a stove for five months straight and not being able to get your hand off. So this sting is not a scorpion from the desert, folks. It's a demonic spiritual scorpion with much, much more intensified venom than any earthly scorpion. God created this thing for that very purpose. This scorpion was designed by God for the purpose of causing the most stiff-necked, hard-headed, cold-hearted, stubborn human beings to experience a pain that is so intensified that it would get the attention of even the blackest of sinful hearts. 
And so you've got the human tissue burning from the inside out with that resin-like oily venom that won't leave or even weaken for five months. And the normal desert scorpion sting has been known to cause humans to die. And now you've got God-created demonic-type stingers that's designed to torture you and, and let you go through the agonizing pain of death for five months and never die. So look how he describes these scorpions, these, these locusts, in verse number 7 through 10. And the shapes of the locusts were like horses prepared to battle, and on their heads it was like they had a crown of gold. Not that they really did, but it looked like it. And their faces looked like faces of men, but they weren't. And in verse number eight, they had hair on their head like women and their teeth were like the teeth of lions, big old fangs and tusks, meat eaters. In verse nine, and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. So they had real hard chest and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots and many horses running to battle. And they had the tails like scorpions and there were stings in their tails and their power that was given to them was specifically to hurt men for five months. This thing to me sounds like some demonic Sagittarius looking creature with a scorpion tail, long hair on its head, meat eating fangs in its mouth and a crown giving it to it from the king of the underworld that it serves. Church, this I believe is one of the very reasons why the world gets so wrapped up into horror movies now. Satan's grooming mankind to get used to spending eternity with demonic horror filled characters just like this that they love to watch on TV now. They love Love to dress up like these things for Halloween, but soon enough, the real McCoy is going to invade the lives of those who coddle up with these things right now, and you can trust me on this one, you'll not like those things in person when you get to visit them for real, and they come for you. Now look at verse number 11. It says, and they had a king over them. This is the king of the underworld that gave them that crown that they're wearing. And it says that king is the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue, his name is Apollyon. So Abaddon means destruction, ruin, the place of destruction, the name of the angel prince of the uh, infernal regions or the minister of death and the author of havoc on the earth. And Apollyon, his name means destroyer in the Greek tongue. And he's called the angel of the bottomless pit, the destroyer. So the angel of the bottomless pit is the one who Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 verse 18 that Jesus said he saw him fall like lightning from the heavens. These locusts are ruled by Satan and Satan is the one that is king over them. But listen church, this is only the fifth trumpet. We, we got two more trumpets coming. And verse number 12 says, One woe is past, and behold, there comes two more woes hereafter. It's going to get worse, church. Listen to this. Verse number 13, And the sixth angel sounded his trumpet. And I heard a voice. This is, this is John said, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So in speaking of judgment, God says, The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground in Amos chapter 3, verse 14. So what were these horns on the altar? Why are they important? Why are they brought up now? What's their significance? The horns were horn-like projections at the four corners of the altar of the burnt offering. God's instructions for the altar's constructions were specifically mentioned that they should have horns. And he says in Exodus 27, 2, Make a horn at the each four corners so that that the horns and the altar are one piece. 
Now, during Amos' day, the Israelites had turned against God and erected altars to false gods. We find this in 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 26 through 30 speaks of two such pagan altars set up in Israel. One of them is in Dan, which is why Dan isn't represented in the 144,000 we read in some of the earlier chapters. And, and the other one is in Bethel. Now, these pagan altars had been constructed with the horns at the altar, fabricated in the image of the altar in Jerusalem. And when God says that the horns of the altar would fall off, he is assuring Israel that he would judge their idolatry. Indeed, God says earlier in the same verse, he says that, and I quote his verse, on the day that I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. So let's look back at what the horns of the altar did. The horns of the altar in Jerusalem provided a refuge for fugitives and those who caught the horns, caught the horn, hold of the horns of the altar were granted asylum in 1 Kings chapter 1. And the use of the horns... Uh, uh, sheds additional light on God's statement in Amos chapter 3 and 14. And many scholars believe that God's promise that the horns of the altar would fall to the ground clearly meant that there would be no place that you could hide, no place to escape God's coming judgment. That when the horns fall off, all bets are off. There will be no place you can go hunt asylum and hide from my judgment. Amos chapter 3 verse 15 indicates that the judgment would have deeply felt effects. He says, I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. So no amount of material prosperity will ever be able to save the wicked people when God's judgment starts destroying both the places of the spiritual things and material things, earthly things and heavenly things. He's going to bring in and bring destruction and the horns will do you no good, yet the people of Israel would not be completely destroyed because Amos 3 and 12 still says, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. So a remnant will survive in their lowly state. They will be left only the corner of a couch, living in a state of poverty. That's what this is representing. So the sixth angel has sounded his trumpet and the altar is crying out. The Spirit of God is speaking from his altar, saying there's no place you're going to get a refuge anymore. There's no place you can get away from my wrath. And this time God is making a point to say idolatry is finished in mankind. I'm no longer going to tolerate the worship of idols and judgment is coming to Israel and all mankind for this very specific reason. So let's hear what the voice of the altar says in verse number 14. He says, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, loose the four angels. Now these are angels, angelos, just another form of a messenger which are bound by the great river Euphrates. Now not all messengers look the same. We have seen this plenty. Jesus was a messenger. Gabriel was a messenger and so was John the Baptist dressed in some animal skins and eating locusts and wild honey messengers come in different forms. So these four angels, they're not heavenly angels coming down, so to speak. But that word bound right there is the Greek word deo, or deo, excuse me, it's Strong's G1210, meaning prohibited. 
It means restricted. So Ezekiel also prophesied of nations rising up and coming from the east and they crossed the great Euphrates River to destroy Israel. They come from the north and they come from the east. And, and this word angelos here means messenger. And listen, there's many ways to get a message across church. So we don't need to be thinking right here that this word angelos is a heavenly angel with wings sticking out. This is and most likely the case to be the four horns rulers of nations with combined armies sending the message of God that there is not an altar on earth that can be given refuge. There's no place to get away from my wrath. I'm using man this time. There's armies of the world coming to get to you. There's armies of the world coming to bring my wrath upon you. So let's read on and we'll see why. And the four angels were loosed and they were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. Now, church, this don't mean that they prepared for 13 months and 25 hours. That's not what it's meaning. It's simply saying God has prepared them for a very precise moment in time for this one specific purpose. Look at verse number 16. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand. That's, that's 200 million. And he says, I heard the number of them. And it's speculated that China will be this army that's about to be mentioned. And, and many of these soldiers, if not all of them, may, may be most of those Islamic nations over there. It could be the Russian nations. But listen, seven members of the Arab League of Nations... As of 2021, according to the World Bank, the Arab nations had a population of 456 million people in 2021. Now, there's plenty of people out there that's enemies of Israel. It could be China. It could be the Arab nations. It could be Muslim nations. It could be Russia. It could be all of them combined. So there's going to be 200 million men that's coming across the Euphrates River all joined together. And look at verse number 17, and thus I saw the horses in this vision. So he sees a vision here. He saw the vision of the 200, man, uh, 200 million man army, and he also sees the horses that they're riding. So it says, I saw the vision, I saw their horses, and them that sat on these horses had breastplates, Greek word thorax there, breastplates, breastplates of fire. That's the Greek word purinos, shiny like fire, not actually fire. And jacinth, jacinth, I believe is how it is. Not sure that's the way to pronounce it. But this is a red color bordering on black. It's They're talking about colors here, not the real fire and brimstone. And the word brimstone here is blackish gray like sulfur. These three right here are mentioning colors of the uniforms. So they're going to be a breastplate of, of a red shiny like fire metal. And then it's going to have border around it that looks black. That's got some blackish gray that looks kind of like sulfur. So the soldier's upper chest area was shiny fiery red with black borders and the blackish gray like the color of sulfur. And look, let's read on. And the heads of the horses were as, not really a lion's head, but were as uh, the heads of a lion. And that's the Greek word uh, ha has, as it means as or like or like or compared to. So if you look at a horse and then you take a great big massive lion's head and put on a horse, that that word head is the frontal part that's mentioned here. The horse's head was huge and had an enormous mane, so to speak. Uh, so it, he, he may not even be speaking about a horse. They're just riding something that 
that they're traveling on because back when he was writing this, there there was only horses for battle and chariots. But he didn't have we didn't have tanks and aircraft and stuff like that back in the first century. So this word fire here is different from fire. Uh, as you look, as we read this, because out of the mouth of these great big frontal-faced horses that they're riding is fire and smoke and brimstone coming out. And the word fire is different from the color there. This word is Strong's G4442. Uh, or, yeah, 4442. And it actually means fire. And the smoke, the word smoke is pure. Greek word 4442. uh they're literally meaning fire there, and the smoke literally means uh, smoke, and brimstone literally means brimstone. That's different from the first verse. So let's look at this. The, the word horses here could very well be the best word John could use near the end of the first century because tanks and cannons hadn't been built yet. A horse with an enormous size head or forward part with a mouth that spits fire and smoke and chunks of brimstone very well could be a tank. I'm not saying that it is, but it very well could be because a lot of folks over in that region, now they have thousands and thousands of tanks that they use for battle. So look at verse number 18. It says, by these three, talking about the scorpions, the 200 million men army and their lion-headed horses, it says, by these three was a third part of men killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which were issued out of their mouths. So now we know that the tanks are the ones that's doing the business or, or the horses are the ones doing the killing with the fire and the smoke and the brimstone because the locusts were told not to do any killing. So we know that the, the guys driving or riding these great big horses, the horses are doing the killing. But look at verse number 19. For their power is in their mouth, stoma, face, or forward part is what that means. Not necessarily in their mouth where their tongue and teeth are. So that just means face or forward part. The front side of these great big headed things that's spitting out fire and brimstone, which is very well could be a tank here, folks. And in their tails... They had power, for their tails was like a serpent, malicious and venomous. And they had heads, the frontal part, and with them they do hurt. So the frontward part of this great big animal or great big machine is what's doing all the hurting. It sounds just like a tank. I can't be sure. God could have very well made some horses, specifically with a great big lion's head spitting fire and brimstone too. So I'm going to leave that one alone because I don't intend to be here to see those things, and, and you shouldn't be either. But look at, uh, he said to do hurt. They do hurt. Their number one purpose was so that they could do hurt. And that's the Greek word adikio, Strong's G91, to act unjustly, wickedly, to be a criminal, to violate, to do wrong, just terrorize is what it's for. So their power was in their mouth, their front-facing portion where the fire and smoke was coming from. Their power was in their tails where the sting and the venom was coming from. The head, the part containing the face and the frontal port, was the, port, the part of these so-called horses that was doing the most harm and destruction. The scorpions were commanded not to kill, just to hurt. The 200 million man army and their fire and brimstone spitting oversized headed horses were the ones doing all the killing and they killed one third of the population on earth. And I, I want to bring a scripture up right here, Luke 21 and 20. It says, when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies and know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Look at, look at that church. I want you to understand that that's going on in the world right now. It's happening in the world right now that Israel is being surrounded by armies. 
So we need to know that this time is at hand. So I want you to look at the, the results of these two trumpets. Verse number 20. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues and by these scorpions and by these great big headed horses repented not of their works of their hands that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood which neither can see nor hear nor walk. And neither did they repent for their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their fornications, nor their theft. These people, there's still a whole lot of people on the earth. After everything that's happened through all these chapters of Revelation, they are still refusing to turn from their wicked ways, still refusing to call out on Jesus Christ and change their lives. Church, there's one more trumpet to sound. This was only six out of the seven. And, and this chapter was five out of six different trumpets going here. And listen, only two of the seven trumpets. Uh, and listen, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to be here for either one of them. This was just two out of the seven. And I wouldn't want to face either one of these two that we just read about. So I want to tell you today, if you've got friends, if you've got family, if you've got anybody, including yourself, that is not serving God, that you're not serving him wholeheartedly, I'm not talking about, man, I prayed some prayer in the altar and I, I've been a Christian, I ain't missed a church service in 28 years or 50 years or however long. I ain't talking about that business. Look, church, God wants your heart to be turned right and worship him in spirit and in truth. Don't you think when you look around the world and you turn on the news, you see what's happening to Israel, you read the scriptures, you find Find out everything that's going on. Don't you think that right now is the time that it's time I got serious with the Lord? It's time that I got serious with serving God and I quit playing around with my sin and quit playing around and toying and wanting to do things my way. That it's time that I decide that Jesus Christ should be my Lord and Savior because I don't want to miss the boat out of here. I don't want to be here with this type of stuff. I'm telling you, if you don't know Jesus Christ today, now is the time of salvation. Don't put it off another moment. You don't want to be here to face these demonic creatures and the stings and the death and the pain for months at a time in the darkness without food, without good oxygen to breathe and just suffering in every avenue you could possibly suffer in, refusing to allow you to die. I would much rather give my heart to Jesus right now and go on to heaven with him when he calls my name to glory. Amen. If you don't know him, turn your heart over him today. God bless you. I hope that this has done you some good. And in the name of Jesus, don't wait too late if you've not given your heart to him. Call out on him today. Ask him to come into your heart. Ask him to change your life. And if these scriptures are putting the conviction of the Holy Ghost upon you, now's the time to pray. Don't put it off. Thank God. I, I, I pray that this has done you some good. Play it over and over and over. And thank you for tuning in. We'll see you on the next one.